As many of you know, and as we've been wonderfully reminded this morning, uh, Wednesday of this coming week will mark the anniversary of Martin Luther's famous, and in some circles infamous, um, action of nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Luther's actions set off a, a chain of events which eventually led to the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation recovered the authority of Scripture and the gospel that proclaims that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Many focus on Luther's uh, public life, and that's good and right, but for a moment, I I want us to consider something that plagued Luther's private life for some time. This plagued him for quite some time. Uh, Luther, as you probably know, uh, was first driven into the ministry when he was caught in a terrifying thunderstorm. But uh, his biographer, one of his biographers, Roland Bainton, identified um, another thunderstorm in Luther's life. Bainton called it a thunderstorm of the Spirit. As Luther began to uh, lead his congregation through a celebration of the Lord's Supper, he suddenly became terrified. Luther was afraid of God. Reflecting on this crippling fear... He said this, At these words I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? And shall I say, I want this? I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. You see, before Luther treasured God's mercy, he trembled at God's justice. In 1517, as God opened his eyes to see the truth of the cross, Luther began to see how God's justice carried God's mercy to him. When he came to faith in Christ, he moved from fearing God to taking refuge in God when fear rushed upon him. In 1527, 10 years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the uh, church in in Wittenberg, Luther suffered what may have been his most severe bout with depression. And yet it was under this cloud of darkness and constant fear that Luther composed the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, in which he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And then a few lines later, he wrote, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. This hymn is based upon Psalm 46, the psalm that we're studying together this morning. And when Luther was faced with fear, he would often resort to singing Psalm 46. While Luther and his hymn are are worthy of study, even more worthy of study is the God who is our mighty fortress. Who is this God who can comfort his people in the midst of life's storms? Are, Are you today, are you in the middle of a storm? Who is this God who is a refuge to his people? Where do you find safety and security. And, and how can God's people find refuge in him? 
saying that we will not fear, just as Martin Luther did so many years ago. Well, this morning, we hope to answer these questions and more. So let me encourage you to open your Bibles, to turn to Psalm 46, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 471. As you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background on this psalm. The the title, as you may see there, this title tells us that this was a song that was meant to be sung. As a whole, the psalms were often used in the worship of the people of Israel. They were, in one sense, the hymn book of the ancient people of God. These hymns were used both personally and corporately. And from the title of Psalm 46, it appears that the psalm was mainly intended for public use. So the phrase there in the title, according to the Alamoth, which, as your footnote in your Bible probably indicates, may be a, a musical or liturgical direction of some kind. And that word, uh, selah, which is kind of set off, uh, scattered throughout the psalm, is probably kind of a, a musical pause or an instrumental notation. Musically, the, the psalm was probably broken up by that word, selah. It likely functioned as a way to briefly rest and reflect on what had just been sung. But we find the, the literary division of the poem of the psalm, in verses 7 and 11. You see that there? There actually, it's a refrain. Do you see how it repeats itself? Verses 7 and 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We're going to study this psalm according to its its literary division there in verses 7 and 11. So in verses 1 to 7, we're given a confession of confidence, a confession of confidence. And then in verses 8 to 11, we're given an invitation to exaltation. We're invited to exalt God. So if you're taking notes, those two headings will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's turn to our first point, a confession of confidence. And as we do, uh, please follow along as I read Psalm 46, verses 1 to 7. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore... We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, this the first section of this psalm is pervaded by a sense of trouble and trust. And this is actually true about the psalm as a whole. We're not given a specific sense of what this trouble is, but whatever it may be, the people of God know who they can trust. That's how this psalm begins. It begins with a a confession, an affirmation about God. It begins with a commitment to place their confidence in the God who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is a a corporate declaration. We see that with the use of the word our. And it's a declaration fit for the people of God. This is the truth that the people of God must remind themselves and each other of when they're in trouble. God is our refuge refuge. He is a refuge. And that term refuge, it it carries the idea of a a defensive structure with it. Uh, God is a a shelter for his people, for us. 
And as hard as it may be to hear this, the very idea that God is a refuge for some, it means that he's not a refuge for others. Are you one of God's people? If so, then he is your refuge. God's protection is strong. It cannot be broken. He is an impenetrable fortress. At the same time, God is our strength. The strength that we have and express and experience comes from him. God defeats our enemies. He strikes out against those who would seek to do his children harm. And this is ultimately seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he defeats our last and greatest enemy, death. God is also a very present help in trouble. One way to think about the the opening of this confession is that it teaches us that God is for us and he's with us. God is for us as he defends his people and God is with us as he is present with his people. God is in the midst of his people, as we'll think about in a little bit. God is is ready and near. And God is ready and near now. God is presently our refuge and strength. It's not that God will be ready and near when troubles come. No, God is, is ready and near in this very moment, whether we are in trial or tranquility. God has been, is, and will be our refuge and strength. We forget that, don't we? How kind of our God to give us a reminder this morning of his love and his nearness to us. And all of this leads to verse 2, which is, in, in some ways, a, a paradigm in which the people of God are called to live each and every day. Verse 2 opens with a, a, a word, therefore, right? Since God is our refuge and strength, since he is a very present help in trouble, we will not fear. The people of God do not live in fear. They live in faith. The people of God live in faith. Now, does this mean that the people of God never fear? No, of course not. I mean, how many times, um, how, many, how many of us had moments of fear this last week? Perhaps we feared a, a conversation with our boss or, or with a coworker. Perhaps we feared opening a piece of mail or a bill. Or maybe we're afraid of, of financial ruin. Or, or maybe we fear what a doctor would say to us, what his, his diagnosis would be. Maybe we're afraid of loneliness. We know that the night is coming and we're, we're left all alone with our thoughts. Or, or maybe you fear that your spouse will leave you or look for love elsewhere. Maybe we fear that we'll sink back into depression. Or, or we fear that our children or family members won't come to, to know and love Jesus. Or maybe we're afraid of death itself. Of, of course, Fear crops up in our lives as believers. But fear isn't the fundamental paradigm we live out of. When we just we think about Psalm 46, what, what other context could this psalm have been written in but a, a context of fear and trouble? This world is fallen and filled with opportunity after opportunity for fear. And in fact, that is how often, that is often how the people of this world live. The, the world, when, when the world lives in fear, it is sadly not in fear of God, but in fear of losing this or, or that. We regularly see the, the fortresses that the people of this world are building. They are regularly protecting themselves from all kinds of dangers. I mean, uh, just as an example, this might seem trivial, uh, 
But, but think of those mayhem commercials from Allstate. You, you know those ones that most of them, I think they're quite funny. But they, they develop all of these scenarios in which all different kinds of things can go wrong. So what you need is insurance. You need a fortress. You need protection, right? That, that's the tagline of the commercial. Get Allstate and protect yourself from mayhem like me. Right? Protect what? Protect yourself. This is what you need to do. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have insurance. I'm not saying that Allstate is evil. Um, insurance is a wise thing. Um, but what, what is Allstate and other insurance companies tapping into to get people to, to buy insurance? It's the fear that something bad will happen. Right? Are, are you in good hands? Fear is a, a common paradigm of life for the people of this world. But it's not the paradigm for Christians, for the people of God. That is, for the people of the world to come. Yes, we, we, we may fear from time to time, but ultimately, our fears do not govern us. What do we do with our fears? We, we go to our Heavenly Father with them. Our fears don't order and orient our lives. Faith is the fundamental paradigm for the people of God. People who commit themselves in faith saying, we will not fear. We're not just called to confess our faith, but to live our faith. This confession should be matched by our conduct. So we can, we can bring our fears to God and we say, Father, this is what I am afraid of. And I'm going to trust in you and walk forward knowing that you are my good and gracious heavenly Father. And you will care for me. Our faith, we express in our lives. We will have faith that God will meet our every need. Faith that God will drive out loneliness with his loving presence. Faith that God would lift us out of depression. Faith that God will give us grace for whatever the trial might be. Verse 2, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verses 2 and 3, these verses, they, they seem to contemplate cosmic disaster. These verses seem to present kind of an end-of-the-world scenario. Things that are immovable are moved. The, the great mountain peaks that, that reach up to the heavens, they, they tremble and implode and are swallowed up. The sea that has been subdued and, and gathered into its place by God's word, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, is now rising and chaotic. It's going to overtake the mountains. That seems almost reminiscent of the language of the flood, which, of course, was an act of God's judgment on the world. This language of the destruction or the reversal of the creation is eschatological language, final language, end-of-the-world language, language which would evoke the images of the day of the Lord to the ancient Israelite reader of this passage, the, the last day where God comes in judgment. Surely, if there is anything that would strike fear into the heart of humanity, it would be the very end of the created order. For now, as we experience the world, we only catch glimpses of such disasters and reversal of the creation. I mean, just think of the recent natural disasters that we've seen. Do they, do they come to mind? When you read these verses, these are glimpses. Recognize these are small pictures of what is portrayed in Psalm 46. 
whereas the recent, recent natural disasters only touch one portion of the globe. What is in view here is, in Psalm 46, is, is global in nature. For when God comes to judge the world, he will judge the world. And consider verse 2, though the earth gives way. See, the final day of the Lord will happen once and only once. There will be days which seem like the day of the Lord. But in reality, they are only foretastes of that great and final day. They are only glimpses of what is to come. These forerunners do strike fear into the hearts of the people of the earth, don't they? These birth pangs are jolts from the hand of the Lord. And they call the people of the earth to turn to the maker of heaven and earth in faith. But the author of Psalm 46 is saying that though the Lord comes in judgment and reverses the created order, we will not fear. Though humanity's very existence on the earth will be in jeopardy, we will not fear. How can the people of God be so confident? Will you be confident on that day? Are you confident now? Or are you concerned? The people of God can be confident because on that day, on the great and terrible day of the Lord, God will be our refuge and strength. We will not face his judgment, but see his face filled with joy as his children are brought safely home to the city of God. We see this remarkable turn in verse 4. And some commentators note that the mood of the psalm dramatically shifts as we're considering the, the gladness of the city of God. This is a city at peace. The, the waters in this city are far from raging and foaming. Rather, they're, they're delightful water streaming from this city. These waters are not conquering the city. They're, they're supplying the city with joy. The expression, there is a, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, is reminiscent of that, of that river flowing out of Eden in Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14. Those who knew their Hebrew Bible would have been reminded of the serenity of Eden in these words. The, the ancient Israelites singing this psalm would have immediately thought of Jerusalem in that phrase, the city of God. As they sang, God is in the midst of her, they would have thought of the temple as that was the location where God's earthly footstool, the, the Ark of the Covenant, rested. The temple was where God made his presence most clearly known to the people of Israel. As long as God dwelt with his people, they and the city of God were secure. Well, what does it, all of this mean? Well, for the sake of safety, should we pick up and move to Jerusalem? For the sake of, dwelling, of God dwelling with us, should we rebuild the temple? No. The temple and Jerusalem were always pointing forward to something greater. They were signposts in the grand history of redemption, pointing us to what God would do in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, what did Jesus say? What was said of Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19? The Jews were shocked to hear Jesus say, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus, of course, was speaking of his body. And when his disciples saw him raised from the dead three days later, they remembered that Jesus said this. Jesus understood that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Jesus is the true and ultimate center of worship for the people of God. He has ultimately displayed God's presence among his people. What about, what about Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is the one who makes his people eternally glad as he brings them into the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city of God. 
The New Testament unfolds for us more information about this city of God depicted here in Psalm 46. So, so keep one finger here in Psalm 46 and turn to the New Testament. Turn to your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I, I believe <coughs> the passage is on page 1009. Hebrews chapter 12, 1009. Let's read what the author of the letter of Hebrews wrote in chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. There he writes to New Testament Christians, um, and he says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's interesting, isn't it? The author of Hebrews says to struggling, doubting, troubled, fearful Christians, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly city of Jerusalem was always meant to point us to something beyond itself, something greater, heaven. And the author of Hebrews says that we have come there In other words, we have come to be citizens there already. Our home there is secure through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. It's through Jesus that we are are pressing on to reach that ultimate fulfillment of what is described in Psalm 46 as the city of God. No, we shouldn't all go and move to Jerusalem. For here, here on earth, we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. The city of Jerusalem, even during its, its best days, was always emblematic of what was to come. And consider what is still yet to come. Keep in mind this city of God with streams, that make, uh, streams of water that make this city glad. And still, keeping that finger in Psalm 46, keep going forward to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. That's on page uh, 1041, I think. Of the Bibles provided. <clears throat> Keep in mind Psalm 46 4, uh, where we read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And now, now let's read the Apostle John's vision of heaven in Revelation 22, beginning there in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a very glad city. It's the city where God will dwell with us and we with him for all eternity. Okay, now, hopefully you've kept that finger back in Psalm 46. So turn back to Psalm 46. And you'll see, I think, that John's vision corresponds well to what we have in verses 4 and 5. The heavenly city is the home and habitation of the Most High God. It's a city that will not be moved. The Lord God will reign there forever and ever. It is God's presence. It is God being with his people that brings stability and encourages the faith of the people of God. 
That is why we have, again, an idea from verse 1, re-emerging. God is a help to his people. He's a very present help to his people. The idea of verse 5 is that we find the expression, God will help her when morning dawns. Is the idea that though all is dark, the light is not far away. And in fact, it is coming. The light is coming. For as surely as the sun disappears in the evening, it is making its way back around and it will be daylight again soon. The nations can threaten Jerusalem. They can rage. But they will be the ones brought to the brink of instability. The city of God will not be moved, but the nations will totter. As verse 6 comes to a close, we're brought back to the language of judgment again. The Lord utters his voice, and the earth melts. Just as the Lord uttered his voice, and the earth came into being, and was formed in creation, so he can speak and cause it to melt away. There will be a day when God will give his final word of judgment on the creation, and on that day, the earth will melt. This is what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see how Psalm 46 is pointing forward to that great day? And in verse 7 of Psalm 46, we return to the themes which verse 1 presented us with. That God is, is for us and he's with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, some translations uh, render that opening phrase, the, the Lord Almighty. And that's a, a fine translation. Both translations underscore the, the might, the power, the strength of the Lord. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, especially picks up on the, the militaristic image of, of presented to us in verse 1. For, for as we read, the Lord of hosts, we're reminded that he's the Lord of an army of angels. We're reminded that the Lord exercises his sovereign, uncontested, invincible might to defeat the enemies of his people. He is strong, and he's actually a warrior for his people. The Lord is our fortress. He's our refuge. He's the one in whom we can take shelter. Christian, even the last day is secure. It is in God's hands. He promises you that you have a shelter in him on the last day. And if you have a shelter in him on the last day, then you have a shelter in him today and each and every day until the last day. God knows the end, and he knows how to get you there. God means for you to make it to the end, and he has the means for you to make it there. That is why you can cast yourself on him in faith. There will be trials in this life, but you can approach them and endure them by trusting in the sovereign God who will keep you safe unto the end. Faith is your paradigm for life, and it's how you take refuge in God. Let your confession of faith be matched by your conduct. Well, having considered our first point, let's turn now and consider our second point, an invitation to God's exaltation. As we consider this invitation to God's exaltation, 
Let's read verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 8 to 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In these verses, we are invited to come. We're going to come and behold the works of the Lord. To come and see what he does is to know something of who he is. In short, we're invited to know God. Much like what we saw in the previous section, when we, looked, when we look at these verses, I think we're looking at a, a final state of things on the last day. A- after all, think about it. When will be the day when wars cease to the ends of the earth? It, it will be the last day. It will be when the Lord Jesus returns and everyone stops what they are doing and every eye beholds the Son of God as he comes to judge the living and the dead. That day will be the day when he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. On that day, the Prince of Peace will reign in peace. It is certainly correct to say that that we get a taste of this when a war on this earth comes to a conclusion and peace in a land begins to reign. But even when that happens, peace is so often partial, isn't it? In these verses, there is a supreme, total, and eternal peace. But this peace comes through the process of judgment, as one commentator put it. There is a what? There is a breaking of the bow. Breaking of the bow which will never fire an arrow again. There is a shattering of the spear which will never pierce flesh again. There is a burning of the chariot which will never roll into battle again. This is what we are called to see and behold, as verse 8 says. The scriptures teach us that the people of God see the end that the wicked meet on the last day. Just consider how the book of Isaiah closes. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, we read, And they shall go out, these are the people of God, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In Isaiah 66 and in Psalm 46, the people of God see the end of the wicked. Kind of like a prophet sees into the future. But quite honestly, we don't have to look very hard for, for God has told us what it will look like. The question is, having seen the end, having seen the end, how will we live in view of the end? Will we choose the way of life or will we choose the way of death? Will we choose the way of the eternal grave or will we choose the way of eternal life? Will we choose eternal refuge in Jesus or will we choose eternal retribution from Jesus? See, having been brought to the end of redemptive history in verses 8 and 9, and having been called to look upon the judgment of the wicked, suddenly, I wonder if you notice this in the psalm, suddenly the divine voice breaks into the psalm and speaks. You see that there? God speaks directly. This is a a startling intrusion in the psalm. 
All along, the author has been telling us who God is, what he does for his people. He protects them and fights for them. How God will one day exercise his divine judgment and suddenly God himself speaks. And what does God say? Be still. Cease. Desist. Be at peace. Stop what you are doing. Who's God speaking to? Is that a question that came up in your Who's God addressing here? Is God speaking to the unbelieving, raging nations? Those nations and people who have been at war with him and rebelling against him? Or or, or is he speaking to his people who may be tempted to tremble in fear? The Lord God's probably speaking to both. To the unbelieving nations, this command comes as a rebuke, a, a declaration that they are to lay down their weapons of war. And to the people of God, this command comes as an assurance. God is their very present help in trouble. But the Lord says more than merely be still, doesn't he? He calls his hearers to know that he is God. Now this knowledge is is more than kind of an intellectual assent. It's more than an intellectual accumulation of information. To know in the Bible often indicates intimate, personal, and experiential knowledge. In this instance, it is to experience God's sovereign rule. For the wicked, recognizing, experiencing, knowing God's sovereign rule on the last day will be terrifying. And a terrible acknowledgement. For nothing but God's unending judgment awaits them. And sadly, on that day, they will not be able to escape this reality. For, For the righteous... Recognizing and experiencing God's sovereign rule in the last day will be an unsurpassed joy and delight. For nothing but God's unending love and grace awaits them on that day. God tells us what this knowledge of him will entail. It will entail his exaltation. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is sure and certain of this event. Why? Well, because he's ordained it. And he's God. And he's in control of it. This is God's divine word. And to this word, he calls us to give ears and hear him speak. If the setting of this divine word is indeed the last day, and everything seems to indicate that it is, then we can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Can we? So, keeping one finger here in Psalm 46, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. That's on page 981. And at the end of of the great Christological hymn in chapter 2, Paul, he he, he writes this in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, referring to Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, friends, he has been highly exalted. He not only sits enthroned at the Father's right hand, but he's interceding for his people even now. Though he has been highly exalted, he has not yet been fully 
exalted, as Psalm 46 looks forward to, as it looks forward to the last day. Christ's exaltation began at his resurrection and ascension, and it continues now as God exalts his Son in the hearts of his people, like you and me, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Each and every day, the Lord Jesus is being exalted among the nations as his gospel of grace is proclaimed by his disciples, by people like you and me, and as he's embraced in faith. But there will come a final day in which the whole earth will recognize the exalted Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I wonder what you think about this truth that God will be exalted among the nations. Have you thought about what that last day will mean for you? We've been told the end here in Psalm 46 and Philippians 2. What will that last day mean for you, friend? The very fact that God is announcing what that last day will look like now, friend, that's a mercy to you. As there remains time and opportunity for you to turn to God and believe in his son Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day in which you can call God your refuge and your strength. And friend, you do need to believe in Jesus. You do need to take refuge in him by faith. You are in trouble. You are in real trouble. In fact, apart from Jesus, everyone is in trouble. We're all made in God's image. We're made to, to love God and serve God and to trust God. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we've all loved and served ourselves. God's word says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. We've lived our own way rather than God's way. That's, that's rebellion. That's making war with God. And it's what the Bible calls sin. And when we put anything or anyone above God, we're making ourselves Lord and removing him from his throne, or seeking, really, to remove him from his throne. When we decide that we're going to live our own way, we're in effect claiming the right to sit on God's throne. We're raging against God. But just as we've considered from Psalm 46, God will speak on the last day and silence all rebels. He will silence all rebels. He will carry out his judgment upon them. And it will be an eternal judgment. When we sin, we sin against an eternal God. And therefore, we deserve to face God's eternal justice and wrath in hell. But friend, there, there is good news. And the good news is that God has provided sinners a shelter, a refuge, and a fortress in the Savior, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, he came and lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never sinned. He always and perfectly loved and served God. And still he died on the cross. On the cross, Jesus became a shelter, a refuge, a fortress for the people of God as he bore God's wrath for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And on the cross, Jesus died in the place of repenting sinners. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was accepted by God the Father. And now Jesus Friend, he invites you. He invites you to, to turn to him, to believe that he lived for you, the life that you've not lived, to believe that he, he died for you, the death 
that your sins deserve. To believe that he was raised from the grave for you so that you would be accepted as righteous in God's sight. Faith in Jesus is how God becomes your refuge and strength. Faith in Jesus is how we are brought to enjoy eternal life with God in his heavenly city. So turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus. Make him your refuge today. And he will be your refuge for all eternity. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus in faith, what it means that he lived and died and rose again from the grave for you, please come and find me at the door and speak with a a member of this congregation, a family member that you came here with this morning about this wonderful news. Children, children, I I wonder what you've been thinking about Psalm 46. Youth, young adults, do you you recognize that this is actually relevant to you too? Do you think this idea of God being a refuge for his people, it's relevant to you. Do you think God, do you think of God as being your help in trouble? What do you fear? Uh, Do you fear that you'll never finish school? It'll never be over? Um, Do you fear that you won't make the team? Or that your classmates will make fun of you or that you, you won't get into college? Children, youth, young adults, will you make God your refuge and strength? Ask your parents tonight about how God has been their refuge and strength for them. Ask them what's that, what, what's that look like in your life? What does it mean for God to be your refuge and strength? How have you seen that true in your life, mom, dad? Go ahead, put them, put them on the spot. It'd be a great conversation to have with them. Ask your parents about how you can make God your refuge and strength and how you can run to him with your fears. In verse 11, you'll see there, the divine voice, it fades, and the people of God speak yet again, declaring that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, we consider verse 7, this refrain, and how we take joy in the truth that God is with us and for us. The Lord exercises his sovereign, uncontested, and invincible might to defeat the enemies of his people. While at the same time being a fortress for his people, he is, he's our refuge. He's the one in whom we can take shelter. And still we need to say more about this God, for this psalm says more. Because he is not the God of all people. You see there, he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of a particular people. Now perhaps you've read this phrase, that the God of Jacob, several times. You've, you've read it throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And you've simply thought, okay, this is another name for God in the Old Testament. And that's certainly true. This is one of the names applied to God in the Old Testament. But it is important for us to recall the the meaning embedded in God's names. That the names of God in Scripture are given to us by God in order that we might know what kind of God he is. He's telling us something about himself in his names. He's the God of Jacob. And this name reminds us that God has attached himself to his people. This name reminds us of the history of the people of Jacob, of of Israel. God is the one who led Jacob and his family down to Egypt. They're promising to make Israel into a great nation. It was God who, in the face of Pharaoh's threatening, threat to kill the baby boys of Israel, that he saved them and multiplied them in the nation. It was God who defeated Pharaoh and the entire army of Egypt and brought the people of Jacob safely out of their chains of slavery. It was God who led the people of Jacob across the wilderness and into the promised land. 
It was the God who led the people of Jacob into battle, defeating Jericho and Ai and southern and northern Canaan. It was God who established his house in Jerusalem as a blessing to the people of Jacob. Christian, this is your God. This is our God. All of what took place in the Old Testament and God's dealings with the people of Jacob, the people of Israel, pointed to what would take place in Christ to a greater degree. He is the God who sent his son into a place much like Egypt, a place which sought to kill baby boys, the hand of an evil ruler. And God providentially removed him from that threat. He is the God who led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted, and yet Jesus trusted God's word and was found to be without sin. In the wilderness, Jesus took his refuge in his Father and his word. He is the God who led Jesus across to the cross to be the Passover lamb. He's the God who brought about a second exodus as the chains of sin and death could not hold Jesus in the grave. He is the God who is in Christ defeating our enemies. He is the God who is establishing our hearts as the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the God who is now, by his Spirit, helping us to make our way to the promised land, the, the heavenly city of God. Christian, this is your God. The God of Jacob is your God. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Christian, by, by faith, you are a part of the people of Jacob, a part of the true Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. We're children of Abraham as we place our faith in the same God that Abraham placed his faith in. Because you are, you can speak and sing this word, Psalm 46. This song of Psalm 46 is yours. And, and notice, uh, if you're still in Philippians, turn back to Psalm 46, but notice there in the last verse that we've just been meditating on, Notice how the people of God claim God and lay hold of him by faith there in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Christian, you are, you're meant to sing this with all your heart. You're meant to rejoice in the truth that God is with you and for you. This is just what Jesus has said to us. What were his words to his disciples in Matthew 28 as he was being exalted up into heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is our refuge and strength, a, a very present help in trouble. Christian, lean on this word. Uh, believe this word. Take God at his word. God is not merely a refuge and strength. He's our refuge and strength. He is with you and for you today, and every day, until the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for, for extending this invitation to us to come and rejoice in your exaltation, and for, for, <coughs> for reminding us that we have a refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that you are near. Guard us from living in fear and help us to live in faith. Cause us to put our hope in your Son who will bring us home to the heavenly city of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <coughs> our closing song is number eight in your hymnals. Go ahead and...
turn there, number eight, a mighty fortress is our God. As I, I mentioned uh, in this sermon, Psalm 46 is the, the basis for this hymn by Martin Luther. Let's join with Luther and, and thousands of saints down the ages declaring in song that God is indeed our fortress, refuge, and strength. Let's sing number eight. A mighty fortress is our God. Please stand as we sing.